0: There's two scripture passages, one that we're going to read in the context of the message. One is just a short one from John that I'll read just now. John chapter 20. I'm just going to read 19 through 23. Jesus appears to his disciples on the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together. With the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Thank thank you for allowing me to join in your series. You're in an epiphany series called God's Love and Our Love. And last week, you laid the foundation for this series by talking about the fact that you're able to love others because God first loved you. And I hope you know and have an experience of that love. This week, we're building on that foundation, talking about God calls us to himself, and he loves us, and he changes us, so that he can send us with the message of peace to the world. And that sending is another word for mission. And I like to talk about mission as taking people, I mean taking Jesus within us to people and places where he hasn't been or is not well known. Does that make sense? Taking Jesus to places and people where he's not well known. The word mission is in the vocabulary of the church an awful lot now in a lot of the literature in North America. And missions used to always be sending people far away because we would pay for a few to go far away to take the gospel to places where Jesus wasn't well known. But a man named Leslie Newbegin, a Presbyterian bishop from England, spent 40 years in India working with the South Indian Church and he, about 15, 20 years ago, he came back from India in retirement, and he noticed that his country of England was more despairing and more hopeless and devoid of the gospel than even the place in India where he had come from. And he started writing to say that the mission field has shifted. It's no longer just far away and sending us as a few. The mission is now to Europe and to North America as well. That's why I'm a missionary now, and I haven't left to go anywhere. I'm still here. And you're all missionaries. And what we've been discovering again as the North American church is that we have a missionary God who has a missionary people, and that's the essence of our identity as Christians. We're a missionary people, all of us, not just the few. One of the key texts that has been used by Leslie Newbegin and many writing about the mission of the church is the text that I just read for you. Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And he breathed on them and and, breathed and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is um, a fancy word that's thrown around a lot called the Missio Dei, the mission of God. And what's so clear in that, those few verses is that the Father is sending the Son, and the Son came to earth, lived, died, and brought the beginnings of the kingdom here on earth, and it's advancing. The Father sent the Son into the world, and then, of course, the Son went to be with the Father, and they both sent us the Spirit to form the church, and then to send us out with a message of peace, that God is making peace again with people, and making them right with himself through the sacrifice of Jesus. And if we invite people into forgiveness of sins, we can say their sins are forgiven. We've been given that peace mission to proclaim. God is a missionary God. That's what the Bible is all about. You are his missionary people, whether you know it or not. You are servants of the servant. You Are on his mission. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? I want to bring that in a tangible way to you this morning through a metaphor that Jesus gave us the metaphor of a meal. There's probably nothing better for understanding the gospel and Jesus' mission and your place in it than the metaphor of a meal. Now, I assume that you eat meals, maybe two or three a day. I suspect you understand what meals are about, don't you? Have you ever thought of the meaning of a meal, though? Meals are for celebrating life. Every time you eat, it's a celebration that you're alive and that you can eat. They're also about forming community. Every time you gather around a table, something's happening to you. You're connecting with the people. And by the way, if your family's not eating meals together, you're going to be in big trouble. Meals are made by God to form you together as a people. They're also for extending hospitality. If you only ever eat with yourself or a few of your loved ones, you're missing the point of a meal. It's to invite people in, to make space, to make hospitality, to share what you have. The meaning of a meal is also about friendship. You can tell who your friends are or who you want to become your friends by who you're eating with or making coffee dates with or going to restaurants with. Meals are about making friends. And I suspect that you like to eat with your friends. They're also a status thing, by the way. They're a business thing. Who you eat with determines your status. How important the people you... The more important they are, the more important you are, probably. The kind of friends you keep. You kids understand that. Who you eat lunch with at school. If you're cool, if you're in, if you're out. You get that, don't you? That's what meals are about. So meals have meaning. They're a means of gracing other people with love in your presence. You can share your love and you can withhold your love all around a meal. If you want to understand Jesus' life and his mission and your mission, if you want to follow him, you have to understand how Jesus understands meals. So let's take a look at Jesus at a table on a Sabbath day through Luke 14 and let's try to figure out what he means what are the meaning of his meal? And if you begin to understand it, you'll understand the meaning for your life and your mission. That's a tall order. Let's see if we can fill it. So I'm going to read off this screen here. Um, I don't think this is the whole passage, so let me set the context for you. Jesus got invited to the Pharisees' home after the synagogue. It's like uh, going out for coffee after church at someone's house. And he got invited to the Pharisees' house, which was a big deal. This was a prestigious meal. And this is what happened. When one of those at the table was with him, Jesus heard this. Another story Jesus told about a meal. He said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses and they said, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry. And he ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who's been invited will get a taste of my banquet. Jesus is making meaning here, sense of his world, his cultural story, Israel's story. He's also making sense of his personal story. He's sitting at a meal telling stories about meals. Meals are a big deal for him. Let me tell you the, the importance of the cultural story of the meal that he's at. He's sitting at a table with very important Pharisees. The most powerful reform movement among Israel To call them back to their true calling as God's people were the Pharisees. They were a separatist movement to keep their identity away from the pagan nations so that they wouldn't get absorbed into the Roman culture. It was a very powerful, pious, it was a good movement. And at the center of their movement to keep Israel pure was all kinds of practices. They had five of them, but the essential one was Mealtime practices and who you ate with. And what they believed was whoever was at those tables was in the kingdom. And whoever was not invited to those was not in the kingdom. Now who got invited to those after synagogue meals? It was usually people who were in right standing, who kept the law. Upstanding, squeaky clean sort of people. They were invited, they were at the meals, so they were in. They were Pharisees. And those who weren't invited were usually the people who were obviously disgraced. People that were sick, ill, poor, lower class, shameful, were not considered good Israelites. And they were not invited to the table. You see, if Jesus got invited. So he was being invited to be a part of this separate group of people. So their ordinary meals had incredible spiritual meaning. And that's why the one, one man said, sitting around the table... Isn't it blessed for the person to be around the table when the kingdom of God comes? You see, their image of the end was that God's kingdom was going to come back. And when God's kingdom arrived, it was going to be like a great big feast. And there would be a great big table. And all the right Israelites, all the true Israelites, the Pharisees, would be around that table. He said, so isn't it great that we're around this table? Because it's a sign of what to come. And if we're at this table, we're certainly going to be at that table. Won't it be blessing when the kingdom arrives? We'll all be at that table, won't we? See, they're saying it was predictive about the future. Who would be in and who would be out? And because we're already here, then we're going to be there. Now, Jesus tells an alternative story with a very different ending that makes them scratch their heads The story progresses this way. Here's the outline of it. There's an invitation. There's the excuses. There's the host who makes a decisive decision. Then there's the servant's mission. That mission gets extended. And notice again, he circles back to the invitation that gets revoked. Can I take you through this rather quickly so that you can see some of the cultural nuances? And then we'll wrap it up. The invitation... There's a rich man, and he's a person of means. He has lots of grace to to extend, lots of money, lots of possessions, and he wants to share it with his friends. He wants to build community, celebrate life, all the things that we talked about. And so he extends an invitation, and it was done twice. The first invitation was probably done six months in advance, save the date, and Uh, It went around to all of his friends, the servants, published that, uh, told those people about that invitation. And so, on the basis of that invitation for the next six months, the fatted calf, all the preparations would be made for the six months. Then the second invitation would come as, now it's ready, now I need you to come, today, tomorrow, it's come. Now, this is not our experience, but it's not all that different, is it, than our weddings? Right? We going to get married, we send out invitations. We ask you to RSVP, right? And then what? Then there's all kinds of work to be done until that date. And when the final date comes, you show up and then finally the master of ceremonies invites you into the hall and you celebrate. There's the initial invitation and the immediate invitation to come in. But just imagine for a moment that you're invited to a wedding and it's your children's wedding and all of a sudden, you start getting emails the day of, Sorry, I can't come. I'm closing on a house. Sorry, I can't come. I got some things to do around my house. I'm busy today. Sorry, I can't come. My wife and I have made other plans. Please excuse us. Can you imagine that? If some of your siblings did that, your aunts and uncles did that at your wedding, you can't imagine it. You know why? Because there would be so much trouble in the family if that ever happened, right? Can you imagine? You can't imagine that. the friendships that would be ended, the families that would be torn apart if you decided not to show up. That's the invitation. Now to the excuses. These excuses are so lame. I bought a field, I purchased oxen, I'm on my honeymoon. They maybe don't sound lame to you, but they are to the original hearers who heard this. Who buys a house and then goes to the open house after the fact? No one. Who buys a tractor and plow and then figures out if they drive straight? Who gets married and then for months says, Sorry, we're married. We can't go to any other weddings of our friends. This is is just not how it goes. These are lame excuses. You know, we can all accept an excuse to not go to a wedding or a feast or a very important event if they're plausible excuses, but these are not plausible. They're just lame, and they have this purpose. They are all trying to publicly shame the host. You see, there's collusion going on. It says, they all alike began to make excuses. These are people who are trying to socially sabotage this host They're sticking it to him, and they're going to wreck him socially and business-wise, financially. They are out to get this guy. They've all agreed that we're all not coming. We're boycotting. They're going to shut him down. This man is betrayed by his closest friends, who are jealous of him, perhaps, and it's brutal. Now the host has a decision to make. How am I going to channel this energy, this anger that I feel towards all these people that are trying to screw me? Do I make an alternative plan to disgrace them? Do I try to find a whole bunch of other new friends and new important people so that my business is not ruined and so that my table is filled with important people, so that my honor doesn't sink in this culture? That's what we would expect. A plan so he is not disgraced. But he comes up with another plan that is to grace himself and other people in the most unexpected way, to grace others. Because he doesn't want this grace that's in his heart, that's in his life, that's on a table to go wasted. So he makes a plan not to disgrace his enemies but to grace other people. He makes a plan of extending love. So that's the mission. He calls his servant and sends him out on the mission of his plan. Go out quickly to the streets and alleys. Go by close to the home. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And that's shocking. That's like none of you showing up for church this morning, and I send out all the elders to find everyone else everyone else. Strangers to come to church. Strangers to come to this meal. Who does that? Nobody. But it's not just that. It's not just strangers. These are low-class strangers. Clearly people who God has cursed. Who's God not blessing. That's the people who are being invited This is shocking. And what's even more shocking is the servant doesn't seem to object. He just does what the master wants. He must know that the master has a heart for those people and wants to grace them. So he does it, and he says, but there's still room. So the mission gets extended. It's not done yet. The meal's not started until this place is full. The mission has to continue Not the streets and alleys now. Now go out to the country. Go out to the country lanes and make them come in. This sounds like forceful language. The language is really persuade or convince them with urgency. Now why would that need to be? If we went now and went out to try to find people who weren't used to coming to church, what do you think that their excuse would be? I don't belong there they wouldn't want me there. I'm not worthy to go there. It would take a lot of convincing of us to say, yeah, we really want you to come. It would take a lot of convincing because most people do not feel worthy, do not feel that they belong, do not feel that they're objects of God's grace. They don't feel they're wanted. So that's why the master says, these people are not going to believe you. They're not going to believe that they're wanted and you're going to have to convince them with repeated invitations because I will not have my grace going to waste. Imagine for a moment that this mission is successful. What does the table look like now? What would this church look like now if the elders went out and found all those people close by and far away and they all came? What would this place look like? I tell you, it would be a mess. It would be a mess. It would be unruly. People wouldn't know where to sit. They'd be sitting in all the right places. They wouldn't know how to behave. They wouldn't know how to behave right. It would be a beautiful mess. And that's what the master had on his hands. A beautiful mess of all kinds of people who didn't belong. And he had a whole new family a whole new social circle, a whole new community, all based on one decision, an act of his grace. If this sounds crazy to you, then you're starting to understand God. Then you're starting to understand grace. The last part is the invitation, the original one is revoked. I tell you, not one of these people who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. Is this just him being spiteful? Is this sticking it to all of his friends, slamming the door on them? I don't think so. I think it's self-imposed judgment. You didn't love me. You didn't want to be with me. And now you're not going to be with me. You won't have to be with me or any of these other people. You'll never get a taste of my grace again. You chose it. And now you're excluded. That's the story. I'm done. A few more minutes to wrap up. Three? Let's go. So, what's the ultimate meaning of this story? What's the ultimate meaning of Jesus' meal and of your life and your meals? Well, you probably know the meaning already. You learned it in Sunday school, but I'll tell it to you again. It's a kingdom meal, a kingdom story. God's coming back and he's come back in Jesus. And Jesus is sitting at this table with the Pharisees, with God's own people. And he's saying, the kingdom's arrived. The host is here. I'm it. I am the father. I'm the son sent by the father. Initial invitation. Come to me. Come to my community. Come follow me. And you're entering into the kingdom. It's beginning it's arriving. If you receive me, if you love me and follow me, then you're in the kingdom. If you refuse me and turn away from the way that I'm saying the kingdom's coming, then you're going to find yourself outside of it one day. That's who I am. I'm the host and I'm here And why am I here? I am the servant, the ultimate servant of the story. I'm the one who's going on a mission to extend my Father's grace, to bring lost, crippled, lonely, hurting people back into his life and into his family. I'm the one who's extending grace and I'm extending that invitation over and over. I'm compelling you Pharisees. I'm comfe- compelling all of you. Come in, come to me, come follow me, come take on my way of life. And do you know what that kingdom way of life is? It's eating with everyone. Eating with everyone. Everyone. That's too simple. That's what Jesus did. He ate with everyone. This was hard for socially outcast people to accept that Jesus would eat with them. Do you know what was harder for? All those religious Pharisees to accept that Jesus would eat with them and not always them. So, what is Jesus giving us an opportunity to do is to repent this morning, which means to think again of what the kingdom's like, to see it differently than perhaps we've seen it before, to turn and see a new reality that Jesus is gathering his new community. And people of faith get to see differently and now act differently. You get to eat differently. What does that mean for you? One minute. It means if you're someone that's been invited into Jesus, if you've been invited into his life, then you're called. Called to himself, into his grace, experiencing his life and love. You're in the kingdom of God. But you're also someone now who's not only called to Jesus, but you're sent on the Father's mission, compelling other people to come in and taste this thing. So, I want to invite you to assess your own eating habits. Who do you eat with? Who are you eating with? And I invite you to adopt alternative practices that match Jesus' story. Start eating with people you don't know or are just getting to know. Meals are your mission, food brings people together, it's not scary. You just have to invite them to your table, to a restaurant, to a coffee shop. But that's how you make friends. And that's how they get into your life. And that's how they meet Jesus through you. This is our mission, to use mealtimes to extend God's grace to everyone. Eat with everyone, or at least someone else. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, this is probably as disturbing to us as it was to them. And this lifestyle of yours isn't always our lifestyle, but we're starting. We're starting to have your missionary heart and we're starting to change our lifestyle so it includes others that we wouldn't normally frequent with. And so we ask you to turn our eyes to see you to where you're leading us together and give us great joy as we share the bounty in our lives with other people so that they can get a taste of your grace and how lavish it is and want to follow you too. Enable us to find a step forward toward the kingdom that's coming. We pray for that grace in Jesus' name, amen.